Let me ask you a couple questions, see if you can know or guess the answer. Which do you think of the Old Testament prophets, of all the Old Testament prophets, there were a lot of them, of all the Old Testament prophets, which one was quoted more by Jesus than any other? Hold on to that answer for a minute. Now, let me ask you another question. Which one of the Old Testament books of prophecy is sometimes called the miniature Bible? You got an answer to that? Well, actually, the answer to both is Isaiah. Isaiah was quoted more by Jesus than any other of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus quoted Isaiah to prove that he was the only begotten Son of God. He quoted Isaiah to emphasize his important mission to come for the salvation of the world. He quoted Isaiah to condemn the sinful Jews of his day. Jesus frequently quoted from Isaiah. Now, the idea that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is sometimes called the miniature Bible comes from this. How many books are there in the Bible? 66. How many chapters in the book of Isaiah? 66. Now, of course, remember that those chapter designations are man-made, but it's interesting, 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books uh, in the Bible. Our Bibles, of course, have two principal divisions, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And, kind of interestingly, Isaiah is divided up that way. The, the first 39 books, or excuse me, first 39 chapters of Isaiah strongly talk about God's impending judgment that was coming. But the last 27 books of, uh, I keep saying books, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah are, are um, a message of comfort and consolation to God's faithful people. So, as the Bible has 20, excuse me, Bible has 66 books, 39 old, 27 new, Isaiah has 66 chapters. The first 39 talk about judgment. The last 27 talk about comfort. The New Testament begins with the birth of John the Baptist. And actually, chapter 40, uh, uh, which is the beginning of that last segment of Isaiah, begins with a prophecy about the coming of John the Baptist. The New Testament ends with a vision of the new heavens and new earth and the last chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 66 ends with a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And so, the book of Isaiah then sometimes paralleled to our Bible and called the miniature Bible. Our daily Bible readings have been in the book of Isaiah this past week or so. And so today we're going to have a couple of lessons that come from the book of Isaiah. And this morning, we're going to especially emphasize some truths from Isaiah chapter 1. If you want to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1, we're just going to spend our time in that chapter this morning, drawing some, I think, important, vital life lessons from chapter 1 of Isaiah. We stop here for a moment to thank you all for coming on this beautiful Lord's Day. We have a great blessing to be together. Uh, the, the weather is ideal. Uh, the circumstances of our gathering together are just great. Coming together as, as the people of God, seeking to worship Him is, a, is, a, is an honor and a blessing, and we're glad that you're here to be a part of it. We have visitors today, and we're glad for you. Come back whenever you can. Ask whatever questions you may have, 
Uh, we, we'll try to assist you in any way we can if you let us know. Thanks for being here this morning. What are some of the vital life lessons that we can draw from just this one chapter of Isaiah? There's 66 chapters in Isaiah, but just the very first chapter is just packed with information that are practical for us as we live our lives. I want to start out by looking at verses 2 and 3, where it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. I would make this simple observation. Sometimes God's people lack the good sense of common what we would refer to as dumb animals, dumb in the sense that they don't have the intelligence of human beings. We sometimes refer to dumb animals. And Isaiah here, through the inspiration of God, is saying that God's people sometimes don't even have the good sense that just average animals have. Uh, we have an expression that we use, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Uh, the, the observation comes from the fact that typically animals will be loyal to the one who feeds them and that we should imitate them. Don't, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Animals don't even do that. Animals are loyal to them. Now, there are exceptions to that. Uh, Diana knows an exception to that principle. She's suffering from a consequence of, a, of an animal who did bite the hand that fed her. Uh, but typically animals don't. Dogs are loyal to the one who feeds them. Cats are, maybe cats are an exception in lots of different areas. But, it, but even a cat typically knows and appreciates the one who feeds it. Uh, animals of all sorts are that way. But Isaiah is saying here uh, that God's people sometimes lack that good sense that animals have. If you think of Israel, you think about all the things that God had done for them. Of course, He power, powerfully delivered them from Egypt. And we think of those ten plagues that God worked upon the Egyptians. Just amazing, incredible, powerful signs and evidence that God was the true and living God. It's kind of interesting when you study the plagues that came upon the Egyptians, the plagues seemed very much targeted toward the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And, and so, you have to dig a little bit to draw this out of that account, but it clearly seems that God was planning the plagues to show He was the true God, powerful over the false gods represented by various things that the Egyptians worshipped. God, a true and living God. The Israelites had reason to have seen that and believed that. Of course, there were repeated episodes where God delivered them and provided all kinds of blessings for them and ultimately brought them into the promised land and they took possession of it. You know what was so incredible? The Israelites began to worship the idol gods of the people that they had defeated. The people that they had driven out of the promised land, they turned and worshipped some of their very idols again. Just incredible. When you think about that, it just seems so amazing, doesn't it? With what they had seen, what they had experienced, and the way God had blessed them, it just seems hard to imagine that they would turn and worship those idols. It just didn't make any sense at all. And I believe that's what Isaiah is saying here. Animals have good sense to know their master. And he says, my people don't. What about us? What about trying to draw that parallel to our circumstance? 
we receive constant blessings from God, don't we? Just over and over and over again, we are blessed by God. And of course we have, even as the Israelites had, we have the powerful proof, the evidence, the testimony that God is real, that Jesus Christ is His only begotten Son, that the Bible is His verbally inspired Word. And yet with all of that, how often do people forget Him? People who identify as Christians forget Him. Uh, and, like the Israelites, we turn to worship the idols of the land. Our idols today are not so much graven images like theirs were. Our idols are typically the idols of worldliness and materialism and covetousness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 identifies covetousness as idolatry. And so we pursue the things of the world like the Israelites did, and that just doesn't even make sense. A dumb animal knows his master. We ought to know our master. What would a modern-day Isaiah say about us uh, in regards to knowing and being loyal to uh, the one who blesses us so much? But as chapter 1 goes on, in verse 11, Isaiah says, again, speaking on behalf of God, it says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. My soul hateth. They are a trouble to me. I am weary to bear them. When you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, Think about this for a minute. and Maybe it raises an immediate question in your mind. These things that God is saying, stop doing these things. He, he, he talks about their sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the, the, the blood of the animals, the, the incense, the, the new moons and Sabbath, the, the called assembly. He says, stop doing that. Away with that. Well, that. Wait a minute. Those are things that... God actually commanded the Israelites to be doing. Why is he now saying, no use doing those things anymore? And of course, obviously the problem was with their hearts. Their hearts weren't right. And so from this we learn the principle that God does not seek, or is he even pleased with, just mere outward performance on our part. Going through the motions, so to speak. Hitting our marks in, in regards to outward activity but our hearts are not where they need to be. In the text that Garrett read for us earlier from Matthew chapter 7, Jesus quoted Isaiah about this very matter in, in, in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, beginning verse 7. Jesus said, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now that's actually a quote from chapter 29 of Isaiah, verse 13. But Isaiah was very much talking about that sort of thing, and he's talking about it here in chapter 1. They were going through the motions. They drew near with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. It was a heart problem. That's why God said, you're really wasting your time you Israelites are wasting your time if you keep bringing burnt offerings, if you keep burning incense, if you observe the holy day. You're just really wasting your time because your heart is not right. I think that that's really easy enough for us to
to comprehend. Uh, imagine, for instance, that you run a business and you hire employees and you've got two employees. The first of them does just what he has to do. He goes through the motions. Uh, he, he only does the minimum requirement. He doesn't want to do anything extra. Yeah, and, and, of course, he's, he's active maybe when the boss is watching, but when the boss, boss's back is turned, he's, he's slacking off. He may even have bad things to say about the boss behind his back. He's just going through the motions, right? And you contrast that employee with an employee who really cares about his job, uh, who is really committed to the success of the company, what do you want? You're the boss. Which of those two employees do you like? Do you prefer? Well, that's an easy choice, right? I want the second guy, don't you? And basically, that's what we're saying here about our service to God. He doesn't want us just going through the motions, slacking off whenever we have a chance to do so. He wants us fully committed, totally dedicated to his service. As we said, Isaiah was talking about that here. Jesus quoted Isaiah. So Isaiah prophesied about 700 years before Jesus lived. So this was a problem of, of people. Way back there in Isaiah's time, it was a problem of people who were just going through the motions and their hearts weren't right. 700 years later, Jesus quoted Isaiah and said it was a problem in his day too, right? Here we are about 2,000 years later, and i got to tell you, it's still a problem with people also. Just going through the motions not really committed from the heart. And so, even if your obedience is right, make sure that you don't render it void by having a bad heart, by not being committed sincerely and genuinely in the heart. That was the problem in Isaiah's day. I think it's still a problem for us to combat as well. In verses 16 and 17, Isaiah 1 Verses 16 and 17, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. I would argue that what we see here is a principle that's always been true. God seeks purity of heart and moral uprightness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The pure in heart will see God. What does that say about people who are not pure in heart? Well, the implication is clearly those who are not pure in heart will not see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. The Lord wants us to be pure in heart. There's a lot of things in our world today that are threats to purity of heart. Uh, I think maybe Satan has more power, more powerful tools, at least, to use to corrupt our hearts than ever before. It's always been a problem, obviously always been a problem, but Satan has got a whole new toolbox of things that he can use to corrupt our thinking and to make us not pure in heart, and we really have to be careful about that. We've got to be careful about the TV and the movies. We've got to be so, so, so careful about the Internet and the things that you can access by a simple click of the mouse button. We have got to be so careful. We know it's a huge problem in our world. Uh, they say the fastest growing addiction in the world today is the addiction to pornography. We've got to be so careful to maintain purity of heart and to live morally upright. 
So get the heart right and then live it in your life. Live morally upright lives. As you look at these verses 16 and 17, I think you see a, a sort of a obvious parallel to a familiar New Testament statement in John chapter 1, excuse me, James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, but bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless, fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Uh, this has always been a principle of God then, hasn't it? That we maintain purity of heart. We live it in morally pure lives. I think it's interesting here that in Isaiah's statement, he said, learn to do well. Learn to do well. That would argue that this is not something that happens accidentally. You're not going to do well accidentally. You're going to do well by learning to do well. Uh, so we need to apply ourselves. In verse 18, we read one of the most familiar uh, statements from the whole book of Isaiah. Isaiah Chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I think the song we'll sing for the invitation song emphasizes this concept from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. And if you were going to summarize that, wouldn't you say that God is just simply always ready to forgive? We talked a little bit ago about how horrible these Israelites have been. I mean, just reprehensible. After all that God had done for them and all the power that God had displayed uh, toward them, and then for them to forsake Him and worship idols, it was just unbelievable. It just doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, even though they had turned on God in such ways, God was still willing to forgive them. Uh, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. What an amazing thing. God has an incredible capacity for forgiveness. Way beyond our even conception is God's ability to forgive. We're not like that. It's hard. It's much harder for us. So, my neighbor's dog comes over and he gets in my trash, spreads it all over the yard. And I have to pick it up, you know. And he says, man, I'm so sorry. Oh, man, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry the dog caused that mess. I'll try to do better. Two days later, the dog's in the garbage again. He's got it spread all over the yard. I'm having to pick it up again. He's, oh, man, I am really, really, really sorry. I'm so sorry. And then before the week is out, a third time, his dog is in my garbage. And while I'm picking up the broken eggshells and the, and the, and the, leftovers that went bad in the refrigerator and we threw them out in the garbage and now it's spread all over the yard and I'm going to have to pick it up by hand. And he comes over and he says, I'm so sorry. And I said, forget it, buddy. This is the third time this week your dog has spread my garbage. No. I can't. It's hard for me to keep on forgiving, isn't it? Not for God. God is a forgiving God. What an amazing thing, right? We've done so much worse to Him. And yet He keeps extending forgiveness to us. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
God has an amazing capacity for forgiveness, and we praise Him for that. We need to praise Him for His great capacity to forgive us. Now, understand that there's something on our part. Notice the text says, come now, let us reason together. You've got to come for this. You want this, this redemption, atonement, forgiveness, salvation. You can come. come. There's an open invitation to come, but you've got to come. Right? We understand that we must respond to receive these blessings from God. We understand that the, the way we do that, we've been studying about this in our Sunday morning Bible class in the auditorium about cases of conversion, what people did in order to be saved. And when we put all the information together, we understand that there's a, a, a process to follow. It's not difficult, very easy to understand. You hear the truth, you believe it, you repent of your sins, you confess your faith in Jesus, you're baptized for the remission of sins. Just, it's just very straightforward. It's not difficult to understand, but we've got to do that. We've got to come. God has an, an amazing power to forgive, uh, an, incredible, an incredible willingness to forgive, but we've got to come and obtain that forgiveness. Finally, in chapter 1 of Isaiah, Isaiah says, If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. This is verse 19-20. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. I would argue from this that God is going to ultimately judge and punish the unrepentant. Isaiah was speaking to God's people. His message was delivered approximately a hundred years or on that, on that order before Judah was ultimately carried away into Babylonian captivity. Uh, and, and so if you're just talking in round terms, Isaiah's prophesying about 700 B.C. Judah was taken captive around 600 B.C. We can get more specific about the years, but that's just in general terms. So, about a hundred years before it ultimately happened, Isaiah was telling God's people that they needed to repent because if they didn't, notice, you shall be devoured with a sword. The mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Um, we were just talking about God's capacity to forgive. Amazing. But we've always seen, all throughout biblical accounts, we've seen that finally there's an end to God's patience. Finally, his long-suffering nature ends and he sends punishment. I mean, so many examples of that. Uh, one of the ones that we talk about a lot is the case of Noah in the Old Testament when God sent the flood. He'd been very patient, uh, seeking for the repentance of men so that they would not be destroyed. Second Peter 3, verse 9, God not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the nature of God. He wants all to be saved. But finally, God sends judgment. And he did it against the Israelites. And we cannot conclude otherwise. He will do that same to those of us today. If we obey him, if you, if you be willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with a sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And so that same truth is for us today as well. God can forgive. God always wants to forgive. He's always ready to forgive, but finally, He will punish those who are disobedient. What's your situation this morning? 
Uh, have you obeyed that simple gospel plan that we described just a minute ago? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you've not done that, we hope you'll make that decision without delay. If you need help with that, if you need more information, uh, just say a word. So we'd be more than anxious to study with you and help you understand the simple Bible truths leading to salvation. If we can help in that way or if you're ready to obey, let us know. If you're a Christian but you've slipped back, the warnings of Isaiah that God will punish those who are disobedient, the warnings of Isaiah cannot be missed by us today. If you have been a child of God but you've not been faithful to him, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Oh.